Good evening, everyone. This is Phil Bell here with today's episode of the All Aboard podcast. I'm your host, Phil Bell, PB Chris, Mr. 645. I'm back in my favorite spot, which is right here behind this, the Brunswick Green PLB microphone. So shout out to all you who are joining us through YouTube, Facebook, Rumble, or our audio listeners, and we love our audio listeners, who are out there on Spotify and some of the other channels where you can find this great podcast. So just in case you're wondering, I am in fact enjoying a little bit of Canadian Club whiskey as we get started this evening to talk about uh, trains, our favorite thing on this excursion into transportation excellence. So first of all, I want to give you a little bit of a recap on where I've been during the past couple of weeks, because I know it's been just a minute since we've done one of these podcasts. So first, I took a trip up to Milwaukee. And so now, I know, I know, I had to fly there because I was a little bit short on time. But I made sure to make a railroad excursion out of it. I started by flying to O'Hare Airport, and then I got on Metro's North Central Service, which is a line I'd never ridden before. The North Central Service, as you probably know, was established in the 1990s when the Wisconsin Central and Metra, which is Chicago's commuter rail operator, decided to bring passenger service back to the route of the original Sioux line, which hadn't seen any passenger service since the Laker, the last passenger train, was discontinued in the 1960s. Now, a lot of the infrastructure that was used in those days is gone, so the commuter services, which operate as far north or railroad west as Antioch, Illinois, uh, going west, but coming east, they go into the northern side of Chicago Union Station. So they take the Sioux line down to Franklin Park. At Franklin Park, they turn onto the Milwaukee Road. And that portion of the Milwaukee Road is what was once used by the famous uh, Union Pacific Streamliners going out to Omaha and the West Coast. They utilize that line to get to Tower A5, where they join the remainder of the Milwaukee Road, heading in past Western Avenue, Tower A2, and the northern end of Chicago Union Station. So it was a lot of fun because this is territory, much, much of which I had never covered before. I had been into the northern side of Union Station, but I had not been uh, on very much the Milwaukee and certainly not west of Tower A5. So I made sure to look out the window as much as I possibly could. It was so much fun seeing Tower A2, which is significant because although it is to the west of Union Station, it also provided entry for the Pennsylvania and their panhandle route to get into Union Station. So thinking about that structure, you got to realize that Pennsylvania came into both ends on two different routes, which gives you an idea of how extensive railroading used to be in those days. Uh, another really interesting thing I saw while riding this line were the F40Cs. Metro has two remaining. They're both parked out by the west near the Western Avenue station at their maintenance facility and they're very much visible from a lot of the trains that go by there. Overall though it was great to see the infrastructure. I've got to give a lot of credit to Canadian National. They keep the railroad in very good shape uh, that you ride over and so, yeah, it, it's a, a good example of what can happen when the private sector and the public sector get together to provide a good service. And listen, that's a lot coming from me because I am your number one free market guy. So I took the North Central service right on into Union Station. And while we were on the route there, I noticed there was a train next to us and it was one of Amtrak's Hiawathas. Important because the Hiawatha is what I took from Union Station on up to Milwaukee for the GOP debate where I was in attendance. Now, of course, 
Things didn't quite go the way that you might have hoped if you're a rail enthusiast. Got to the Union Station, went around, got a recommendation from a conductor to go to a place that I've almost never been before. Just kidding, Sabaro. And uh, if you are in Chicago, go to the Sabaro and Union Station. They have a tremendous breakfast. I suggest you go someplace else for pizza because you need real Chicago-style pizza. But they have a great breakfast there. Uh, It'll definitely put a lot of meat on your bones and plenty of calories, but it'll keep you going. I got there, had breakfast at Union Station, walked around. I have to say, uh, you know, I'm not usually one to give Amtrak a lot of credit. They have done a tremendous job with Chicago Union Station. First of all, the Great Hall is a beautiful facility. It is very clean. It is hospitable. It is the kind of place where whether you are a local traveler, regional, or you're going long distance, where you will not have a problem sitting there and relaxing while you wait for your train. Uh, The staff is very, very welcoming. They're great people. And also, I encourage you to go ahead and get a ticket into the Metropolitan Lounge. So you can get in in there for free if you're a first-class passenger. So that means traveling in Amtrak sleeping cars or if you're in business class on a regional train. But if not... Pay the $35. First of all, it's a great place to store your luggage if you're going to go ahead and tour around the city, which I would do later on when I went back uh, to the area the following week. But also, they have uh, plenty of good snacks that you can eat there, very well-maintained, and a lot of space. So it's a place where you can go spread out, open up your laptop, do do some work if you need to, um, but just overall enjoy the area. One of the things that I really liked about Union Station is how much history that they have really made sure to keep in that facility. Whether we are talking about a great painting of the New York Central, uh, which is a railroad that didn't serve Union Station, by the way, that's in the Metropolitan Lounge, to if you go up to the Metro ticket counters, you'll see videos playing in the background of some of the railroads who used to be in Union Station. And for the record, the Pennsylvania, uh, Milwaukee Road, and Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy were owners of Chicago Union Station joint owners, and they were also joined by the Gulf Mobile in Ohio, who is a tenant railroad. So there's a lot of history in Union Station, and also what you may not realize, and I certainly didn't until I started looking a lot closer at the track diagrams, is Union is very close to all of the rest of the stations. Uh, Once you leave, if you're headed out the north side, you'll notice you quickly pass right under the Chicago Northwestern that's going out of what's now called Ogilvy Transportation Center, but it was originally Northwestern Station. Not too far away is Dearborn. Uh, If you walk over Roosevelt Road, you will see the leads to LaSalle Street Station, which of course is no longer what it used to be. And in the process of crossing over to see those leads to LaSalle Street Station, you will pass where the leads used to be for Dearborn. So Dearborn is, of course, famous for hosting the Santa Fe, the Super Chief, the El Capitan, my favorite, the Erie and the Erie Lackawanna, the Chicago and Eastern Illinois, which we're going to talk about a little bit later during this episode, and um, you know, plenty of railroads in that area. Also, uh, LaSalle Street, that's where the 20th Century Limited and the New York Central, or most of the New York Central's fleet, would come in from the east, and also the Rock Island. So, interesting to think about. The 20th Century Limited was probably, in many cases, sharing a platform with the Golden State or some of the trains that would go out west on Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific. Now, a little bit further away, and it's certainly worth your time to visit, and it's notable because that's where the famous Bean is uh, in Grant Park, or I should say Millennium Park, is the site of the old Illinois Central Station, which was called 
Central Station. Uh, the IC station uh, primarily served that railroad trains, but it also served those of the Big Four, which was later controlled by the New York Central. So that's just another example of where railroad history got to be very, very interesting. And I almost forgot there was one more that I want to make sure that we cover just briefly, and that was Grand Central. Grand Central is where the Sioux Line would come, and we talked about the Sioux Line earlier because the northern North Central route that we rode was part of the original Wisconsin Central both the original and the latter-day Wisconsin Central. Uh, the Wisconsin Central original was at one point controlled by the Baltimore and Ohio, and so their trains would come into Grand Central, which was a B&O property. Uh, the B&O would eventually, as the passenger services started to decline, find its way over to Northwestern Station. So some of the track that we were paralleling on our way into and out of Union Station, in addition to hosting the Chicago Northwestern trains, at one point hosted those of the Baltimore and Ohio. So that tells you why Chicago and Milwaukee, that whole region, is very, very important for any rail enthusiast, rail historian, or somebody who's even just casually interested in transportation to visit, because there was so much in terms of what railroads went where, when they did it, why they did it, and so on. And so that actually lays the groundwork for what we're going to be doing starting next week, which is going to be a multi-episode series on the railroads of Chicago. Now, I don't just believe in covering a little bit, you know, an area, even an area as significant as Chicago, because it's important to understand what really feeds into it. So for our coverage, we're going to go as far east as Elkhart. And that's also going to include South Bend. We're going to look as far south as Danville, going out to the west, looking out into the Galesburg area, because Galesburg was such a significant outlying station, in that case on the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, but also an important point on the Santa Fe and remain so today, and then looking north as far as Milwaukee. So we'll be covering a lot of those historic railroads. We'll be talking about the operations of today. we got several good places that we recommend that you eat, because if you know me, you know I love to eat. I love to also have a good beverage from time to time, which we're going to do as we do these, whether it's you know it's a little bit of bourbon, whiskey, sometimes tea, you name it. Uh, we enjoy the culinary arts here at All Things Trains. Um, but also, what I want to make sure that series does is breaks down a good way of going about attacking this area if you're a rail enthusiast. Um, because the one thing you'll know about Chicago and the entire region is it's not small. There's some places where you can go in this country, such as Folkestone, Georgia, where you can go and you can see a lot without going very far from the tracks. But in the case of Chicago, because it really is the railroad capital of the world, you are going to have to make a lot of an effort to find, to divide everything up, figure out a way to get to those areas, make sure that you're doing it in a way that keeps you safe. Because Chicago, like all big cities, especially all deep blue cities, tends to have a lot of crime and difficulty. And no, you're not going to be spared just because you have a Conrail hat on or have a, uh, if you're like me, uh, a film SLR. You're not going to be spared uh, in that case. So you want to make sure you keep yourself safe while you're doing this. And also, you know, you want to make sure it's productive because there's nothing demoralizing or nothing more demoralizing, I should say, than going someplace you're either A, not going to see very much in the way of trains 
or B, you're going to, uh, you know, just kind of get there when everything is done and you think, well, why the heck did I do this? You just kind of feel like it's not a lot of fun. So we will be covering Chicago. We're going to start that next week. But this week, we're going to talk about um, a few of our very interesting East Coast railroads. And today, we'll be starting with the seaboard. And we're going to talk about it in the context of passenger trains. But more on that in a little bit. Now, there was one more thing I wanted to talk about uh, on my trip up to Milwaukee from Chicago. And uh, some sorry, I got a little off track there, pun intended. But it was finally the ride on the Hiawatha. Now, I was scheduled to leave at 1 o'clock, got ready, had my ticket, had my luggage, ready to go, waiting, 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 and what did we find out? Train was canceled. Some kind of mechanical defect that nobody explained what was there. Now, I noticed on my way in that the train would have two chargers on the uh, charger on each end, one of the uh, Siemens SC44, so this was not the ALC42 that is being utilized on the long-distance routes. These are the ones uh, that have the IDTX reporting marks, the Illinois Department of Transportation. Those are used on a lot of the Illinois services, or I should say all the Illinois services, as well as the Hiawathas and the services that go into Michigan, the former Wolverine and the trains that have been kind of amalgamated into that service, uh, including, I believe, the Pier Marquette. But don't quote me on that because it's been quite a bit of time since I've seen one of the Pier Marquettes uh, in person. And so this meant I had more time to sit and wait. And so I did that in a place where I don't recommend you necessarily sit and wait if you don't have to. And that is the lower level Amtrak concourse at Union Station. Now it's clean. It's, you know, the seats are comfortable, but if you're going to spend time there, don't do what I did. Go sit in the great hall where you have lots of space to look around, to move around. You got plenty of fresh air. If you can get in the Metropolitan Lounge, Get in there, spend the $35, as I said before, because the lower level, uh, track level concourse where a lot of those trains board from, it is very much like a airport of any sort. You know, it's not comfortable, a lot of people close together, everybody kind of getting in a line because they want to be the first to get on the train. I got to be honest with you, it doesn't really matter, especially on these regional trains where you sit, whether you have a window or an aisle, so don't really worry about it. You'll still be able to rail fan. Uh, so finally, 3.30 or 3 p.m. comes along, and I'm finally able to get myself on board a Hiawatha. This one did have a Genesis, uh, excuse me, Siemens Charger pulling, SC44, but it also had a cabbage car. That's for those of you who are uh, not indoctrinated in rail enthusiasm. That's a cab and baggage car. So we've kind of smushed that together and called them cabbage cars that Amtrak rebuilt from F40PH locomotives in the early 2000s. Amtrak calls them non-powered control units, NPCUs, and it has several of these that have been painted in an attractive scheme that honors our veterans. And we'll make sure to post on uh, Facebook a couple of pictures of those just in case people are looking to see them. Uh, but it was on one end, the charger's on the other. The charger led as we moved westbound toward Milwaukee, and this, the trip was rather interesting. Now, Got to give a lot of credit in this case to Metra and Canadian Pacific. They've done a very good job with the track conditions on the entire route. I know there's a Trains Magazine article years ago that talked about how at one point the former Milwaukee Road had gotten to be a very an example of poor track uh, poor track maintenance in the late Milwaukee and early Sioux Line days. But since then, they've gotten a very good handle on it. Smooth ride, 
crews are very helpful, nice people, and they do whatever they can to help make you happy. Uh, the downside, of course, was, and want to just point it out because it was there, uh, rode in a Horizon fleet car for the first time. I find them to be very comfortable, which is something that I wasn't expecting because I've ridden in the same body shell as part of uh, Pullman Standard, the original Erie Lackawanna Comet 1 cars that were on New Jersey Transit. Didn't think they were all that great, but the choice of seat is a big difference because, of course, in the Comet series, you have commuter density seating that you can't recline, you can't do very much of anything, and they have three across on one side. But when it comes to the Horizon fleet, you have Amfleet-style seats, which are quite comfortable. I may not be the biggest fan of the Amfleet car, but the Amfleet seats are quite comfortable in any car body that they're put in, and so that was great. Downside, downside, was, of course, it was over extremely hot, overheating. I think I lost a couple of pounds. I worked off that breakfast that I had up at the Sabaro while I was riding that Horizon fleet car. Uh, Air conditioner wasn't working, but look, it's part of railroading. It's part of life. Not everything's going to be perfect, but I had a good ride and had a great time going on up into Milwaukee. Now, the unfortunate part of the entire excursion was that I couldn't take the train back because it was sold out, so I had to fly. And flying meant that I had to go to the General Mitchell Milwaukee Airport where they have the absolute worst TSA in the entire country. Now, I'm not a big fan of the TSA. Some of you TSA folks are very good. A lot of you are dedicated to your job and you're very nice. A lot of the TSA, of course, are the kind of people who want to yell at you and treat you like you're a child. Those people should frankly have their pensions taken away. But in reality, the worst are at General Mitchell Airport in Milwaukee. I was sexually harassed, molested, you name it, there by a 60s, 50s, 60s year old man simply because the broke down Rapiscan machine made by Lidos. And Lidos, you are certainly on the list as one of America's absolute worst companies. You're a grifter. The people who run you are a bunch of grifters. You should be shut down. And I'm a free market guy. I don't believe any company should be shut down by the government except maybe you, Lidos. Uh, you're terrible and your machines don't work and you're grifting off the taxpayers' dollars, but we'll get more to that later. Uh, had a terrible time there. So if you can avoid going to the General Mitchell Airport in Milwaukee, I encourage you to do it. That's a great way of defunding their criminal activity. And you should take the train there, take the train there, take the train back. If you absolutely have to fly somewhere, go to Chicago. And I always, almost no one ever tells you to go to Chicago. But Chicago has two airports where they don't treat you anywhere near as bad as they do at General Mitchell Airport. Now, there is one good thing, only one about the General Mitchell Airport. And it's that if you're in the terminal and you look out over the tarmac, you'll see the Milwaukee Road is right behind that tarmac. So if you have to go there and you're stuck for a while, it's the daytime, go ahead and look out. You will see freight trains and passenger trains rolling through while you're waiting for your airplane. And you can think about how much more fun you'd be having if you were taking the train. And I can say that uh, as well. Now, I want to talk about some news that's out here because we have a very, uh, you know, our industry is so diverse and it has so many interesting things going on with it at all times. And one of the things that's been going on lately comes to us in this piece from MSN and we'll go ahead and get that on your screen uh, right now. 
And this comes from Jim Martin, and actually it's from the Erie News Times via MSN, and it talks about the 10-week strike at Wabtec's Erie plant, how it ended. Now, the interesting thing about this strike is that it went on for so long. In fact, uh, it says here, during these 10 weeks, managers worked beside replacement workers as Wabtec tried to fill orders. All the while, union members who agreed to walk the picket lines at least 28 hours a week to qualify for strike pay collectively logged more than 400,000 hours carrying signs and standing vigil outside Erie's locomotive plant. Now, you might remember if you've been following uh, us over on the All Things Trains Facebook page that we did a post a few weeks ago talking about the strike and how there was some legitimate concern among the political leadership in Erie that this strike could be so bad that it leads to the plant's closure. Now, you might remember this plant, of course, it was been built by General Electric. It's been around for close to 100 years, and it's built a lot of very, very, very historic rail equipment. So you think about the U-25Bs came from there uh, when GE finally decided to get into the freight locomotive business full-time. The Genesis engines came from there, and we're actually going to have a calendar out to commemorate the Genesis engines this year. I know. Don't kill me. I'm an, I'm a lover of V-units, but we're going to commemorate the Genesis engines. But they came from Erie. Uh, your Dash 8s, Dash 9s, Dash 7s, they all came from there. But let's also not forget the Fairbanks Morse Erie builds. Those, while they were not General Electric products, they did come from there as well. So this was a historic plant. But in the intervening years, GE itself, General Electric, has gotten out of the locomotive business and they sold it to Wabtec, which is part of the West, uh, Westinghouse Air Brake Company, the George Westinghouse's famous company. But Wabtec now has been in the locomotive business on its own for many years because it is effectively a combination of part of the old Wabco that George Westinghouse founded, but also the locomotive operations of Morrison Knudsen. So if you remember Morrison Knudsen, who got into the rail business as a partner with Montreal Locomotive Works, by the way, rebuilding the Burlington Northern E9 units that operated for many years out of Chicago Union Station on that railroad's uh, route out to Aurora, Illinois, they got into it and they ended up becoming the premier rebuilder of locomotives uh, in the United States for many years. And so you think about so many of the locomotives that we see today, mostly EMDs, were rebuilt by uh, Morrison Knudsen over the years. That business eventually became MPI, Motive Power, uh, I think it was Motive Power Incorporated. And MPI was part of their effort to get into the locomotive business, new locomotive business more fully, with the MK5000C prototypes, which were way ahead of their time in many ways, and ultimately, unfortunately, failed. And that, in part, led to the sale of all of MK's rail operations and the collapse of the company. But that portion lived on Wabtec has done a very good job with it. They've built the MP36s, which have a big presence on Metra, since we've been talking so much about Chicago. But also, outside of my work window in Washington, D.C., where I get to see MP36s operated by both Mark and Virginia Railway Express on a daily basis. Those have been incredibly successful locomotives, and that prompted uh, you know, Wabtec to take an even bigger plunge, which they've done by purchasing the General Electric uh, transportation GETS assets. Now, what was interesting, though, where we're going with all this, 
is before the divestiture, General Electric had opened up a plant in Fort Worth, Texas. So if you've been following some of the sites like railpictures.net and you see a lot of the rebuilds that are coming out of uh, for Norfolk Southern, AC44C6Ms that are being done by GE, a lot of those rebuilds are being done in Fort Worth. So that gave GE and now Wabtec a lower cost option for doing a lot of their work, whether it's building new locomotives or rebuilding existing ones. That made the city fathers in Erie more than a little concerned, and I'm certain it rubbed off on the employees as well, because this is a situation where a strike like that can end up getting a locomotive plant closed and look no further than the former London, Ontario plant of General Motors. That plant for many years made... uh, you know, was the predominant plant for locomotive manufacture in North America, or I should say competing with Erie, after General Motors, who then owned Electromotive Division, moved their operations up to London from LaGrange, Illinois. They kept some functions there, but the majority of the assembly went to London, Ontario. But what happened after the business was sold, uh, a job action, as they're now calling them these days, resulted in uh, the closure of the London facility and its demolition. There is no more locomotive building. There is no more place to build locomotives there. And so therefore, after decades and decades of that, uh, you know, a job action, a labor, a strike, which is really what it is, uh, a strike, led to the end of that and the loss of many jobs. So that was something that was possible at Erie, thankfully for the employees and for us rail fans and for the history and for their overall business, everybody who either is an actual stakeholder or considers themselves to be one, it's good that didn't happen. And we're glad that manufacturing capacity has been preserved, at least for now. But it's interesting to think about as we look at the next piece that we're going to cover, which was written in Railway Age, September 6, by David Nahas, who operates uh, Rail Financial. Uh, David N-A-H-A-S-S, if you're looking him up online. And David Nahas is one of the uh, premier folks who talks about rail finance because he does it uh, for a living and has actually worked with that and several related organizations for many years. But what David Nahas talks about is a little bit of the financial state of the rail industry now. Now, we're just talking about the strike Uh, that hit the GE plant or Wabtec plant in Erie, and what the financial implications could be for Wabtec. Well, Mr. Nahas, when he's talking here, he mentions this, uh, that Union Pacific, for example, has returned investors a whopping 763% on their investment between 2009 and 2021. And during that same period, though, Uh, CSX, from 2015 to 2023, I should say, CSX saw investors receive 203% on their investment. Canadian Pacific, 130%. That's pretty substantial. Those are big numbers. But in this piece, David also talks about how railroad stock prices, and here's a quote, says, railroad stock prices had a near-term peak in April of 2022. Uh, Compared to that peak, Since that time, Union Pacific has been down 26%. CSX, I'm a shareholder, down 10%. Canadian Pacific, 2%. So that gives you an idea of what a lot of the industry could very well be facing. And that is a period where the stock prices, revenues, earnings, and so on are not growing. 
because over the mo- over the recent years, you've probably heard about uh, what's been the boogeyman of many in the rail industry and many stakeholders, what's called PSR or precision scheduled railroading. Every class one carrier, that's Canadian National, Canadian Pacific, the former Kansas City Southern, which still exists but is now part of Canadian Pacific Kansas City, Norfolk Southern, CSX, and Union Pacific, they all adopted some version of precision scheduled railroading. Now, on its own, PSR is nothing more than saying, hey, we're going to schedule each car, uh, provide each car with a schedule, which is something that in the you know so-called old days where freight trains rarely ran on an actual schedule would happen. But PSR was, in a modified form, was implemented by E. Hunter Harrison on the Illinois Central. He later took that to the Canadian National, then the Canadian Pacific, and finally CSX before he passed away. And the result of all of that was a dramatic shift in the way that every railroad conducted their business. You saw now longer trains, you saw higher profit, and you saw operating ratios that were so low that they were unfathomable in the so-called golden era of railroads. And operating ratio is operating revenue divided by operating expenses. So it's a very good way of measuring how effectively the operations, just running the trains that each railroad does, uh, how effectively it's taking those dollars that it gets and turning them into money that can be available for the shareholders. And I know there's a lot of you out there, especially among the rail fan community, you have followed what a lot of the rail employees say, uh, and you know, just saying, hey, the folks who own the railroads, they're only out to make a profit. That's all they ever want to do. Well, I got news for you. And this is not because I'm trying to hit the employees or hit the fans or anything like that, but uh, the railroad has to make money in order to exist. It really does. Because I just want you to each think about you individually. Would you put your money into a stock that doesn't make any money? You probably wouldn't. In fact, if you do, you usually get upset. Well, that's the same thing that a lot of investors have when they invest in the rail industry. And that's why PSR was so important and so good for a while, because it helped the railroads become much more profitable and much more successful after several decades of consolidation that never quite panned out in terms of what was expected or what was sold to Wall Street. Now, the result, however, is that it looks like if Mr. Nahas's numbers are to be believed that the railroads have reached a peak in terms of, or at least in this time, in the terms of what they're able to wring out of PSR. So that ultimately means that not only are the railroads going to have to take another look at their operations, how they do it, what they do, and how that's going to ultimately produce returns for shareholders, but it's also going to impact companies like Webtech. And let me also throw one other thing at you. Recently, you saw in the aftermath of the big deal to avert a labor strike in 2022 that a lot of the railroads have come to agreements with their unions for substantial wage increases. So we're talking about conductors, engineers, almost entirely across the board. And there have been additional uh, substantial changes in the way that sick time is apportioned. So therefore, there's going to be a higher cost with respect to not only what the wages are, but also in allocating sick time and finding employees who are able, sick and vacation time, and finding employees who are able to keep 
these networks fluid. So that's going to impose much higher cost on railroads at a time where Wall Street has said, okay, you know, we think you've probably gone about as far as you can with precision scheduled railroading. So the financial future of our industry is very much in question. And so I hope you'll go on over to Railway Age and uh, read this article from David Nahas. We will have it posted on allthingstrains.com, which is our website. And we've got it on our Facebook page. So just go to Facebook, put in All Things Trains. If you see a picture of a big boy on the profile picture, it's there. That's our page, uh, facebook.com slash allthingstrains. That'll get you there. So those are a couple of news pieces that I wanted to talk about while we were here oh and uh one one more one more and this is uh unfortunately i don't have a a picture for it but it's some good news that a lot of you rail enthusiasts if you're like me and you love cab units you'll be very happy to hear the pennsylvania railroad uh, sorry philadelphia chapter of the national railroad historical society has sold Reading FP7 number 903, and that was one of the last three cab units of any sort that the Reading kept after the uh, mid-1960s. They sold it to SMS Rail for operation on their Woodstown Central tour service out of, Sal- um, out of Woodstown, New Jersey, on the Salem branch, former Pennsylvania. Uh, if you haven't gotten down there to see that operation, it's certainly something that you should do. Right now, they've been operating with a Baldwin S12, uh, engine number 304, that is of Monongahela Railway Heritage, and a um, Redding Caboose, which is beautifully restored in red. And it's a lot of fun to see the passengers there who are riding the beer train and some of the other services they have. I know, beer train is I drink bourbon. But, um, you know, just a terrific time. The crews are great. Uh, the management of that railroad, they're a lot of fun. They're fan-friendly, of course, as with anything, especially at fan-friendly locations. Make sure to be respectful of the property because we want them to continue to be fan-friendly uh, and not think that we're trespassers or a bunch of reprobates. Um, they've been doing a good job there, and they're actually adding to that with several coaches of Jersey Central Heritage, commuter coaches of Jersey Central Heritage that were part of the Jersey Central's push-pull services that they put together in the 1960s as they were going from the uh, old-school operations out of the Jersey Central Terminal, which is now part of Liberty State Park, and moving on over to uh, through using the Aldine plan, which saw the trains then operate into Newark Penn Station on the Pennsylvania uh, and later Penn Central. So went, definitely want to get down there, see those coaches. They're restored to a condition that is much better, probably when they were new. So uh, I, I don't even know if we should call that a restoration, but certainly the kids would say a glow up. Yep, that's me being an old fogey right there. Um, but it's it's worth your time. And it looks like you're going to have an FP7, at least one, and potentially two, because there are reports, although they are unsubstantiated, that the 902, which has been the 903's running partner for years, and they've been stored at Steamtown together for quite some time, it's believed that it will be leased to SMS to help uh, operate these trains. So keep an eye out, get your cameras ready, get your video ready, and it will be a good time coming up very soon. Uh, and one more quick piece. There is a rumor out there. We can't substantiate it, so we're not going to uh, fully report it yet, but we will say to keep your ears open, CSX is rumored 
to have come out with a new paint scheme for its locomotives. And it'll be, looks like a little bit of the YN2 yellow nose hockey stick scheme from the front. And it has some blue and yellow, extra blue and yellow added to the back in a unique way. Uh, I will let you go on to uh, the internet, Facebook, you name it, whatever your chosen uh, outlet is. And go ahead and see if you can find it. If you can, if it's true, we'll all find out when we see a locomotive leave the paint shop at one of their uh, shop facilities. And of course, we will burn massive amounts of film on it. Because here at All Things Trains, if you're Phil Bell, you're shooting film and you're proud of it. Now, uh, I wanted to move on to just a... um, of our main feature, which today is talking about one of my favorite railroads, the Seaboard Airline Railroad. So the Seaboard Airline was is still, to this day, uh, more than 50 years after it was subsumed into the Seaboard Coastline as part of a merger with the Atlantic Coastline, still one of the most important railroads in America. And why is that? Because it is the S in CSX. C, of course, standing for Chessie, S standing for Seaboard. Now, the Seaboard was uh, formed in the 1800s, as with very many other railroads, and it started as a short line that was connecting Portsmouth to, I believe the the name was uh, Portsmouth and Roanoke, but it was connecting Portsmouth to the Roanoke River area in northeastern North Carolina. So we're talking about the Weldon, Roanoke Rapids, that section. So a very small railroad. And it was emblematic of a lot of the railroad development that took place of that time. Very large number of these railroads were built because there was a need to provide local service to localities such as Portsmouth, which is a small city in Virginia even to this day. Uh, And it got them to other segments of commerce, such as that river, the Roanoke River, which was, you know, then used for a variety of transportation needs as had been happening since before the founding of the Republic. Now, over time, the seaboard would grow and it would grow and it would grow. So you had folks, uh, a couple of big names, John Robinson and John Skelton Williams, and they were part of the effort to consolidate the various railroads that called themselves the seaboard airline. And by the way, this was something that was very popular to do is that you had small railroads get together and then utilize marketing to make themselves to be bigger than they are. Why is that significant? Because that same strategy is what the Seaboard successor, Seaboard Coastline, would do uh, about 100 years later when they created what you might remember, the family lines. When the Seaboard, the Louisville and Nashville, the Georgia Railroad, Clinchfield, Atlanta and West Point, Western Railway of Alabama, Gainesville Midland, Charleston and Western Carolina, when they all got together and they were calling themselves, marketing themselves as the family lines. And just like what would happen 100 years later, what happened early is these railroads that were marketing themselves as a single line route ultimately were consolidated together. Now, one of the big figures in the early days of the seaboard is named Solomon Davies Warfield. Now, Solomon Davies Warfield was a Baltimore guy, and what he did is he took over the seaboard after it had gone bankrupt, or and, and this is a fairly common occurrence, because in those days, bankruptcies tended to lead to what's called receiverships. And receiverships technically made the receivers 
the owners of the property and at the very least the leaders of it for the purpose of reorganizing it, paying debts and getting the company back into solid financial health. This was a very, very interesting time because bankruptcy law and bankruptcy efforts to cure uh, debts that couldn't be paid were certainly not being done on that large a scale at the time because railroads, being relatively new, were some of the only businesses that were operating in a large way across state lines, across county lines and otherwise. If I go bankrupt, chances are, although some people say that I already am bankrupt, but that's another story for another day. Uh, you know, you can go to a an auction and purchase all of the things that I own to help uh, remediate my debt. But when it came to a railroad, that wasn't really possible. So a lot of these efforts to keep these railroads serving multiple jurisdictions within multiple states uh, and get them back healthy required a, certainly a new approach to the law. And the receivership was one that was done uh, quite commonly in those days. So Solomon Davies Warfield he is notable because in the early 1900s, he takes over leadership of the seaboard and he expands it into Florida because heretofore it was a carrier serving the Carolinas, getting into Virginia, but it ended up going down to Florida and where they incorporated the Florida Central and Peninsular and other railroads there so that it had a very, very dense network that connected the Mid-Atlantic to the Southeast. Now, Let's go over here and get you a map so you can get an idea of what we're talking about when we, uh, when we mention the size and the scope of the seaboard. Because it's one thing to talk about it, but as we all know, when it comes to railroading, there's no way to do it unless you're doing it with a map. And here you go. Now, you can see in the uh, upper right-hand corner of the screen, you've got Portsmouth, and the portsmouth weldon Norliner route, that was the original seaboard. The original, uh, what went into, would be ultimately called the seaboard airline. Then you've got the most important segment, or one of the most important segments, north of Norlina, which goes up to Petersburg and Richmond. Why is it so important? Because Petersburg and Richmond ultimately gave the railroad access to both east-west traffic. In Petersburg, that meant what would ultimately become Norfolk and Western, and then Richmond, access to, again, east-west traffic via the Chesapeake and Ohio, but also the northeast via the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac. Uh, it should also be noted that in Richmond, they also connected with the southern part of the Richmond and Danville there. Now, the southern, of course, would be a competitor, major competitor for the seaboard, serving the southeast because both carriers went to Atlanta, Montgomery, and Birmingham, not to mention uh, hundreds and hundreds of smaller communities across the Carolinas, Georgia, and Alabama. Uh, but that segment was critical, and that is one of the reasons why even today, despite a lot of the changes that have taken place with the carrier, uh, that the seaboard continues to serve as a critical part of our transportation infrastructure. Now, going south from Norlina, you'll see the North Carolina state capital of Raleigh, which uh, where there is a lot of really, really interesting trackage. And what you're going to see is over the next couple of months, we'll be spending some time in that area, Raleigh and the Sand Hills region, getting to know some of that uh, and seeing some of the short lines that are operating there before you come down to Hamlet. Now, Hamlet is really the heart of the seaboard. 
because at Hamlet, not only did you have the network of lines to the north with Portsmouth and Richmond, but this is also where the lines toward the south, or throughout the south, split off. One major route went out to the west to Athens, Atlanta, and Birmingham, and this is the route of the Silver Comet. Uh, this line continues to play an important role in CSX's operations because this is the principal way that they move traffic that is on the eastern portion of the East Coast into the Atlanta area. And that's mainly the, uh, the Monroe subdivision. Then also to your right, you have two lines, uh, one going to Charleston. That is what CSX calls its Andrews subdivision. And then the second going through Columbia, and that is the main line. That was traversed by a lot of the passenger trains that we're going to talk about a little bit later, the Silver Star and the Silver Meteor. Now, at Savannah, you see there's a line that headed out to the west, uh, Richland, Georgia, Vidalia, as Vidalia is in your Vidalia onions, and then, of course, Montgomery, Alabama, which is the capital of that state. And then going south from Savannah, you have the line, which unfortunately is no longer there, and CSX later called its Everett subdivision. Now, if you look very, very closely at this map, and we'll have a link in the, uh, in the bio below so that you can actually get to these and, and look a little bit more closer if you'd like to, but you notice this line is very, very close to the shore, and it's close to a lot of tributaries. It had a lot of bridges, a lot of low bridges, uh, many of which had wood pilings. And so that made it in the CSX era to be a very expensive proposition to keep. And that's a large portion of why that line is unfortunately mostly no longer there. Now, when you get into North Florida here, you see Jacksonville. Jacksonville is not Florida's capital, but it might as well be Florida's railroad capital because this is the funnel through which so many people came to the state of Florida uh, by train. They still do by highway and to a certain extent by train. But Jacksonville was an important installation on the seaboard. It included the West Jacksonville shops, which of course have now been closed, and then going out to Baldwin. Baldwin is the site of a major yard. It is also very accessible from a rail fan standpoint. There's a McDonald's and a few other places where you can go, get some food, and sit back there, although got to be a little careful about how you do that. But the Baldwin Yard, an important installation where a lot of classification takes place there. Then from Baldwin, going west to Chattahoochee via Tallahassee, was the Tallahassee, Maine, which is now the Florida Gulf and Atlantic's line that runs... Uh, to CSX in Alabama. Now, you can also go south through Waldo and Wildwood, Wildwood being yet another critical junction point on the railroad because this is where a lot of their network to the southwest, Tampa, Clearwater, St. Petersburg, Venice, Naples, that split off there, whereas the rest of the traffic would continue in general to the east, uh, headed towards Indiantown, Lake Okeechobee, West Palm Beach, and Miami. You'll also probably remember that this segment between West Palm Beach and Miami, uh, and actually a little bit further north, uh, and I believe it's pronounced Manjonia Park, but uh, if you are a Floridian, please don't kill me for making that pronunciation error. Uh, that is home to the Tri-Rail, South Florida uh, Transportation Corridor, and the SFRTA has actually double-tracked that entire segment, so it's now even busier than it ever was in the days of the Seaboard Airline and the Seaboard Coastline. At the same time, 
much of this traffic to the west going to Tampa, St. Petersburg. This is a highly industrial section of the state. It was then and it is even more so now. So that is this trackage, uh, particularly in the Tampa area, is critical to CSX's growth. One thing I'd like to point out is it looks like, and it's true, Orlando is here on a branch. And Orlando was not very much of a, a notable location for uh, the seaboard or pretty much anybody in those days because that was in the pre-Walt Disney era when uh, it was just yet another Florida town whose future was bright, except nobody really knew it at the time. Now, what I want to do is talk a little bit about the passenger services that the Seaboard had. And we're doing that partly because my first train ride actually was aboard the Silver Star. Amtrak Silver Star in 1980, I believe it was 1985 or late 1984 with my Aunt Phyllis. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in the next episode because what we'll be doing there is going through the changes that Amtrak implemented and how that is significant. Why that is is because Amtrak has actually now operated these trains, the Silver Star and the Silver Meteor, for longer than the Seaboard itself operated the Silver Star and Silver Meteor. Uh, as time goes on, as the hair, oh, I should say, yeah, right here, gets a little bit more gray, for even a young person like me, and I'm only 42 years old, you realize that a lot of time has passed in uh, the so-called modern era. So while we may have spent a lot of time pining for these trains to come back and you know, hoping that the F40PHs and Genesis engines and so forth would just go away, uh, they've actually been with us for quite some time now, and so they are just as much a part of our history as the E7s and the old passenger cars of the days of yore. Now, the seaboard service for many years was very much like the service of any other railroad. They had heavyweight passenger cars that were pulled by steam engines. Uh, they moved in a way that we would consider today in 2023 to be relatively slow, and that's just the way it was. But the seaboard was an underdog. The seaboard was an underdog to the Atlantic coastline, and let's get you a map of the Atlantic coastline uh, that was its principal competitor for years and years and years. Excuse me. Now, why was the seaboard an underdog to the Atlantic coastline? Well, first of all, let's go ahead and take a look at the map of the Atlantic coastline versus the seaboard. So let me get that up for you here. And we come over and you see the map of the Atlantic coastline. So what do you see? Uh, number one, looking up here, they both went to Wilmington, North Carolina. Seaboard did. So did the Atlantic coastline. The ACL went to Norfolk, whereas the Seaboard went to the southern side of the, uh, of the area in Portsmouth. Same difference. Both went to Richmond and Petersburg. No problem. Both went to Charleston. Uh, Florence wasn't really someplace that was on the seaboard map, but if you look out, Atlanta certainly was, Birmingham certainly was, Montgomery, Jacksonville, of course, uh, Thomasville, Georgia here versus Tallahassee, Florida, certainly both had a presence in Orlando, although the Atlantic coastlines was much bigger, uh, both had a, had a presence in Naples, Sarasota, and the Tampa-St. Petersburg area. Seems like it's pretty good, right? Seems like it's very, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Seems like it's very much an equal competition. 
except it wasn't. I want you to come over here and look at this. The GA, that's the Georgia Railroad. The A&WP, Atlanta and West Point. WRA, Western Railway of Alabama. Those carriers were all owned by the Georgia Railroad and Banking Company, and they were leased to the Atlantic Coastline. That meant the Atlantic Coastline had, number one, a much, much, much more dense network in that area in these growing Sunbelt Southern cities than the seaboard did. And those carriers were nominally independent, and you've probably seen plenty of pictures of of uh, them with their own unique paint schemes and so forth, and that's because they were operated separately, even though they were, in fact, controlled by the Atlantic coastline. Uh, so they were big, but that's not all. What was the other thing that made the Atlantic coastline stand out over the seaboard? It's this railroad right here, the Louisville and Nashville. The Louisville and Nashville was controlled by Henry Walters and the Atlantic coastline because of a man that we're, many of us are familiar with, and this is our old buddy here, John Pierpont Morgan, also known as J.P. Morgan. And this is J.P. Morgan himself, not the current financial institution, but the J.P. Morgan himself. Now, J.P. was very important to the development of today's rail industry and the important to the development of yesterday's railroad industry. Now, he was famously known for, I shouldn't say stopping the feud, but maybe lessening the feud between the Pennsylvania and the New York Central. Uh, he is known for, or believed to be, somebody who just ruthlessly went in and took control of railroads everywhere and stomped on the common man and was generally seen as being a largely incorrigible mm. human being. Well, J.P. Morgan didn't quite do that. In fact, uh, one fun fact that you will, uh, I hope you will take with you from this podcast is that back in the time when J.P. Morgan worked, Common shares, common stocks, the kind of thing that nowadays that the buyout barons will use when they want to take over a company, those were just seen as being ultimately trash. That was something that absolutely nobody wanted. So J.P. Morgan and his friends, when they would reorganize or has been said in books, remorganize uh, failing railroads, they would actually buy the bonds and use those bonds to influence the reorganization of those carriers. And of course, they would get wealthy by collecting fees and so forth from arranging the financing and so on to put those carriers back on their feet. Well, two of the carriers they did that with, one was what would become the Louisville and Nashville, and the other was the Richmond Terminal System that would become the Southern Railway. J.P. Morgan himself was good friends with a man named Henry Walters. And here is Henry Walters right here. Um, and let's get his picture up. Henry Walters you may have heard of because he is the uh, founder and the, the person who is primarily behind the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore. So if you're in Charm City, please go ahead and visit the Walters Art Museum. Number one, I think even though railroads is our number one thing, it's always good to get a little bit more culture. Go see the art. Number two, you will be railroading in a different way when you go and see what... Uh, what Henry and his father, William Thompson Walters, had collected over the years. And both William and Henry were critical in the establishment of the Atlantic coastline. Just like the seaboard airline was established from several railroads that started to jointly call themselves the seaboard airline, even though they were not 
uh, under common ownership, at least not initially. The same thing happened with several railroads calling themselves the Atlantic Coastline. And so the competition started. But the Atlantic Coastline, thanks to Mr. Walters and J.P. Morgan, they had much more access to money. Uh, access to capital, I should say, than the seaboard did. So therefore, they were able to take control of the Louisville and Nashville. Another railroad that figures into this is the Clinchfield. Now, we all know the Clinchfield because of the famous 800 and all moving coal and so on. Well, the Clinchfield was controlled by the Atlantic Coastline and the Louisville and Nashville. The Louisville and Nashville was controlled by the Atlantic Coastline. Put all those railroads together and you have very strong coal haulers, very strong merchandise traffic, access to one of the growing Sunbelt regions. You have access to capital. And oh, by the way, one more thing about the Clinchfield. The Clinchfield provided access to the Midwest because while on the southern end, Spartanburg, it connected with the Atlantic coastline and connected with the southern on its northern end, or perhaps I should say the western end, in Elkhorn City, Kentucky, it connected with the Chesapeake and Ohio. So when you combine its access to the Midwest with the same access to the Northeast that the seaboard had over the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac, now you can see where the Atlantic coastline was a much stronger railroad in terms of potential traffic, actual traffic, and financial standing. So the seaboard would always find itself struggling. It was the quote-unquote also-ran. So what do also-rans do? They find a way to differentiate themselves and make themselves stand out. So the way they did that was with the silver star, excuse me, with the silver meteor. So it would just start with this here. This tail car is very much reminiscent of the original that was introduced on the silver meteor in 1937. The Edward G. Budd Manufacturing Company, which we call the Bud Company uh, for short, or just Bud, uh, they created the concept of the seven-car passenger train. And remember, as we were saying earlier, just about everything the seaboard did was no different than what any other railroad was doing at the time. But the seven-car all-coach train was very much different uh, from what was going on because, number one, it looked totally different. The first thing you do is look at the absolute, uh, you know, and for lack of a better phrase, pimp mobiles that you could call the E4s that pulled the original silver meteor. And I'm going to bring up a little picture for you here. Uh, and why do I call them pimp mobiles? Well, you'll see in a second. Uh, let's just go over. And what you see here is an artist rendering. But this is really what the Silver Meteor did look like. First of all, the EMC, and it was EM, still EMC, Electromotive Corporation at the time, E4, A, and B. Now, I know the picture here does not include the B unit, so, um, you know, that, that wasn't always included, but those were generally operating. The E4, A, and B were dressed in the beautiful citrus color scheme, and that was a dark green. And you'll find out more about the seaboard. They love their different shades of green uh, with yellow or imitation gold on top and then yellow or excuse me, imitation gold and orange across the sides of the locomotive. Also, below the uh, below the belt, so to speak, or below the anticlimber, you had silver trucks 
and silver fuel tank silver pilot so this was really something that looked completely different from the black steam locomotives that would be found pulling the trains of the atlantic coastline which was their principal competitor but the other thing to think about is look at these coaches this stainless steel fluting that we so often now today associate with amfleet cars and some of the um some uh, Amfleet cars, the, the bi-levels in Chicago, and so on. And so it seems old hat to us now, but that was a radical change from the way passenger cars were constructed in years past. These are the so-called lightweight cars, and I want to say a minute, uh, a word about that. Although they are supposedly lightweight in their construction, a lot of these cars were heavier than the heavyweights that they replaced. So by no means think that this was just entirely a brand new lighter than air kind of train no these were very heavy very capable and very much fitting in at least in terms of weight with the other rail cars out there but the style of construction was different and the way they looked was quite a bit different now i'll challenge you the next time that you are near a an amfleet car or if you're someplace whether it is with one of the older bud cars uh but passenger cars or Bud cars, as RDCs are called, take a very close look at the bodies of the cars. And what you'll see are these very almost trans transparent um, small brownish dots. And those are the thing that made it possible to have stainless steel passenger rail cars that are not only durable, but are stronger than anything out there. And that is called the shot weld process. That is something that but pioneered because they couldn't figure out how to attach stainless steel to stainless steel. You couldn't just weld it like you could with the materials that were being used for other rail cars. So what they did is decided to pass an electric voltage through the two different um, pieces of metal and that caused them to fuse. And ultimately it made for a very strong body. And that's one of the reasons why, whether we're talking about the Amfleet cars that were built by Bud, or we're talking about other cars that have operated for years and years and years, such as those on Via Rail Canada, which were also built by Bud, uh, on the Canadian and some of their other services, that's what makes it so durable, is that form of welding the body together. So uh, there were a lot of there was a lot of innovation that took place, whether it was a diesel locomotive, which was different, or the shot weld process that made it possible. So now you have this new train that is absolutely, totally different from anything else on the rails, and the seaboard was very proud to do it, and they certainly stood out. In fact, almost from the beginning, that train name, Silver Meteor, became iconic. And even today, you will find people that know very little about trains, but they do know the name Silver Meteor. And of course, the Silver Meteor has continued to run. Uh, and we're not too far. We're starting to approach. We're not there yet. But we're starting to approach uh, the century mark for her since she did start running in 1937. Now, we'll open up the timetable and I want to point something out here. So we've got this timetable. This is from October 31st, 1965, but we also have several others. Uh, let's see, 1960, December 1960, April 1957, December 1963, April 64, and April 65. All these timetables are in great condition, and each of them can be yours for $15 a piece. Now, I know that's a little bit elevated over what some of you folks are used to paying for some of these timetables, but 
there's a reason why we're charging that, and I think that you will be happy to pay it. And that's because these are some of the most complete timetables, public timetables, that you're going to find out there. Now, I wanted to start with the inside of the uh, October 31st, 1965. And so if you can see it here, let's make sure we get it right. Uh, family vacation, treat them to Pullman luxury. So look at it. Mom, dad, yes, mom is hot, by the way. And the two kids, they're all right here. And uh, you can see how the seaboard was advertising the Pullman accommodations into taking people into Florida, which, of course, shows you for years what it's been like to travel to Florida, whether we're talking about air or rail. So a lot of the things that you saw for many years in the airlines, they actually got pioneered right here on the seaboard. Uh, looking in a little bit more, you'll see you've got the Atlanta to Birmingham Silver Comet right here on the right side. Because although most people tend to associate the seaboard with Florida, we can't forget that Atlanta, Birmingham, Montgomery were all important parts of their network. The other thing to look at here, piggyback anywhere. So the seaboard very much was a part of the piggyback business. And that I-90, what is now the I-95 corridor has always been critical to railroad growth and sustaining that. Uh, but it shows you how these timetables were not just for the passenger to know where he was going. They were also uh, done in the mind that some of the people who were traveling on your railroad as passengers also could be in charge of shipping freight on your railroad as customers. So that's why the passenger trains, even though they have an uneven wrap because at times they were unprofitable, at times they were profitable, uh, the seaboards and Atlantic coastlines did much better than most. Um, despite I-95, despite Eastern Airlines and so on, they um, were, were very helpful and certainly did contribute. And But the real thing that they did, though, was they contributed PR. Because when you get on a passenger train and you're treated well on that passenger train, when it arrives on time, that is a great way to show the traveling public that you can also perform with respect to freight. So that's why it was a natural to include your uh, advertising for piggyback right in here with the public timetables where the normies, and don't you don't want to be a normie, but a lot of us are normies, not me, not, not me, but a lot of the normies uh, would be reading. Another thing to look at when we go into this timetable is here is a schedule showing where Southern Greyhound and I believe it's, yeah, Tamiami Trails would be providing some connecting service to Seaboard's trains. So, for example, you could take Southern Greyhound to Orlando from Jacksonville and other towns including Leesburg, Tavares, Zellwood, Apopka, and Lockhart. So a lot of these, uh, also Brooksville, Waldo, Gainesville. So a lot of connecting those trains with buses. Now, part of that was because as time went on, actual passenger service to these locations, passenger rail service, declined because it's very expensive to serve some of these smaller communities that never really did generate that much in the way of either passenger or freight traffic. But this also took advantage of a lot of the growth in the highways uh, and improvements in highways, which made it easier to drive some of the new buses that were being built by General Motors and Flexible and so on, and that were hitting the road. So if you couldn't beat Greyhound, might as well join them. And that's what the Seaboard did. 
Now, uh, what the Seaboard, though, is most known for, like I said, is a silver meteor. So let's go ahead and using this uh, timetable, and actually before I go to that, I want to show you this is the system map from that, and you can see the heavy black lines. Those indicate lines that have passenger operations on them, and you also see a lot of the connecting carriers, um, whether it's the Pennsylvania up here or the um, the Southern Railway down there. There's a lot to be seen here. That's another good reason why we've actually reasonably priced this at $15 and why it's worth it to you to go ahead and buy that from us. And by the way, if you're interested in these, just send a private message to us on Facebook or shoot us an email at info at allaboard.media. Put in the subject line, Seaboard Timetables. We will get that in the mail to you the day that you let us know. And we'll also give you a quick Venmo or PayPal link to pay however you prefer. Now, uh, going in here, let's start with the Silver Star, the Silver Meteor. So here is uh, what the combined schedules look like. And this is, again, in the 1965. So you'll see that in this time, the Seaboard had the Silver Meteor, the Silver Comet, and the Silver Star. Those are your main ones. And then you also had the Palmland and the Sunland operating in the New York to Florida corridor. First thing you'll notice about this is looking in Table 1, you'll see the names of several, or the initials of several other railroads. The NY, NH, and H, that's the New York, New Haven, and Hartford. The PRR, the Pennsylvania Railroad, and the RF&P, the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac. Now, as we said earlier, the way the seaboard got its traffic, passenger and freight north of uh, Richmond, was to put it on the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac. The RF&P was a 114-mile railroad, and it was jointly owned by where the majority of that ownership came from connecting carriers such as the Seaboard, the Atlantic Coastline, the Pennsylvania, the Baltimore and Ohio, and also the Commonwealth of Virginia. Now, the Commonwealth uh, would ultimately use that ownership to sell it to CSX in the early 1990s and keep what was left of Potomac Yard uh, and turn it into apartments and shopping centers, which is unfortunately one of the places where I go to relieve myself of my money uh, on a monthly basis to buy uh, some of, you know, to, to do some shopping there. And, and I'm actually kidding. It's, it's actually a good place to shop. Um, although we don't recommend you go to Target, but otherwise it is a good place to shop or go to the movie theater. Uh, but that was actually helped to bolster Virginia's pension fund when they did that deal. The RF&P, uh, when it got into Northern Virginia and specifically Roslyn Junction, which is in the Crystal City section of Arlington, is uh, it ended and the Pennsylvania Railroad began. And the Pennsylvania Railroad played a very, very, very important role in the movement of the seaboard's passenger trains because the Pennsylvania took those trains from Washington, D.C. at Union Station, where the RF&P would actually hand them off to the Pennsylvania uh, up to Penn Station in New York. And once they were there, after the passengers were offloaded, they would take the trains over to Sunnyside Yard in Queens, where they would be cleaned, restocked, and washed on the outside. And yes, they really were in those days washed and kept clean. Now, this was uh, a little bit of a point of contention, though, because when the Silver Meteor was introduced, as I mentioned earlier, it was nothing but a seven-car train, even if it was a very attractive seven-car train. 
Pennsylvania, though, being a big railroad, being one of the largest railroads in the country, they didn't really see the benefit of operating a seven-car train by itself. Their, the wholesale, their wholesale transportation and the Silver Meteor at the time was most certainly retail transportation. And so they said, we'll operate it for a little while by itself, but after that, we're going to go ahead and combine it with one of our trains. Uh, so you would have the image of the seven-car streamliner gleaming-looking uh, newfangled train consist at the back of one of the Pennsylvania's traditional uh, regional trains that was operating between New York and Washington. So that certainly was not necessarily what the seaboard executives had in mind when they, uh, when they came up with the idea, but that's what they did early on. And so as you look through the timetable and you look at the uh, condensed schedules, what you'll see is, uh, and let me get back as I lost my place a little bit here. What you'll see is that these schedules include the numbers for the trains of the, uh, of the Pennsylvania that either the train ran under or the train ran combined with. Now, by the time we got to 1965, the Silver Star and the Silver Meteor had grown so much that there was no way the Pennsylvania could hope to use them as uh, just a portion of their other train as a section of their other trains now there was a story though that from time to time the folks in sunnyside would take one of these consists these beautiful uh comfortable long and uh, heavy long distance consists and occasionally slip them into one of the pennsylvania's commuter trains down to the jersey shore uh we don't know how many times this happened there's plenty of anecdotal evidence if you're one of the commuters who managed to find yourself sitting in very comfortable seats and wondering why you managed to do that uh please let us know in the comments we'd love to hear your stories about that but um in this time for example going southbound uh the silver meteor was train number 113 on the pennsylvania railroad and it connected with train number 171 on the New Haven. And that's also interesting because keep in mind that although New York to Florida was the primary market that the seaboard was serving, they also maintained connections through the Pennsylvania with the New Haven to get those passengers who were going into New England, so areas such as Providence and New Haven itself, in addition to Beantown, uh, provide them with a way that they could more or less seamlessly get over to another train that would get them to and from that area. Now, uh, the Silver Meteor was also interesting because it did not carry very much throughout its entire time with the Seaboard Airline and Seaboard Coastline carry very much in the way of head-in traffic. So if you go back and you take a look at pictures such as the artist rendering that I showed you earlier, you'll notice there's no head-in cars, there's no mail cars, there's no express cars, because you didn't really find those very much on the Silver Meteor. The Silver Star, however, which was the Silver Meteor's running buddy that was created in 1947 when the original Silver Meteor seven-car consist was replaced with newly acquired cars that were ordered by ordered from Bud and Pullman Standard. That At that point, then you started to see the head-end cars uh, join the Silver Star. So the Silver Star and Silver Meteor look quite a bit different, although the Silver Star certainly did become a you know very uh, heavily trafficked train in its own right. Now, the other that we want to make sure that we point out 
in part because it has uh, a name that is certainly recognizable, especially if you are living west of Atlanta, is the Silver Comet. The Silver Comet, like the Silver Star, excuse me, like the Silver Meteor, it was one of these early trains, new streamlined trains. But uh, as we talked about earlier, rather than continuing south of Hamlet into Columbia and into Florida, it went out west to Athens, Georgia, Atlanta, and ultimately Birmingham. Now, the Silver Comet, unfortunately, was also one of the first excisions, uh, first major excisions, as it steadily had its route cut back, cut back, and then it eventually just became a shell of its former self, because unfortunately, you started to see the decline even on the southeastern railroads, which did not take it, uh, did not have it as bad as those in the northeast, but the passenger service started to decline, and sadly, a lot of the passenger services that were utilizing Atlanta as a hub were some of the ones that were the worst hit. And that's uh, one of the reasons why if you go to Atlanta nowadays, you don't have a major passenger rail facility. You have a former suburban station, Brookwood Station, is the only place in Atlanta where you can catch a passenger train. And that's only twice a day, once north and south. Because Atlanta, um, you know, being a city that developed very quickly and grew very quickly and became a transportation hub for the air, although it had started as a transportation hub, uh, for rails, very quickly forsook its passenger trains, and that was all she wrote. Now, the seaboard ran uh, and continued to grow and continued to fight with the Atlantic coastline for many years until 1967. And in 1967, the seaboard airline merged with the Atlantic coastline to form the Seaboard Coastline Railroad. Now, if you've known me for any kind of time, you know, I, I don't know what it is. I, I have a few railroads that I'm just totally a sucker for. And one of those railroads is the Seaboard Coastline. Now, if you look, uh, do a little looking at this map here, you'll see that, you know what? It's pretty much the combination of what I showed you with the Atlantic Coastline and with the Seaboard Airline maps. Uh, these railroads went to a lot of the same places. They serve similar markets. They are a good example of the sort of merger that the Interstate Commerce Commission, for whatever reason, despite its mandate to preserve competition, would ultimately allow. You see, while we tend to look at mergers as being a way that a company can expand its market or expand its operations by merging with another company to fill holes that it may not have, the Interstate Commerce Commission tended to look at this as a way to lower the cost of rail operations. And for many years, the ICC had believed that railroads, that there was too much railroad track, which is something that yours truly does not believe was ever the case, uh, and that it could never be profitable effectively or as profitable as it needed to be and so therefore a lot of it needed to be destroyed but they couldn't exactly come out and say that that's what they wanted to do so ever since the 1920s i believe they had promoted a variety of schemes one of which even involved attempting to use the government's authority under the commerce clause which i don't believe they have although some of the legal eagles out there might disagree with me to force railroads into consolidation uh, by telling that they would take away their authority to operate across state lines. Total absurdity, the sort of garbage that would come out of the Interstate Commerce Commission, one of the reasons that agency has gone the gone the way of the Dodo and gone the way that we hope that Milwaukee's General Mitchell Airport, TSA, will go. 
Uh, but they came up with some of the worst schemes out there. But what they would do is they would green light, approve, and promote the idea of parallel mergers as opposed to end-to-end mergers. And the Atlantic coastline and the seaboard, very much a, a parallel merger. And so you started to see a lot of rationalizations taking place over the years. Uh, one good example of that is right after the seaboard and the Atlantic coastline merged, you saw a big rationalization take place in Petersburg, Virginia. Uh, in Petersburg, the Atlantic coastline and the seaboard had their own separate lines which came operated near each other uh, and in some cases would even cross each other on the way up to Richmond. And so the seaboard's line, which went over a very long and high viaduct, and, re- uh, and the pilings for that viaduct are still there, by the way, near Virginia State University. Um, you know, that line was dismantled, the viaduct was taken down, the piling's not, but the bridge was. Uh, and the trains were routed through a new connection by Collier Yard called the Burgess Connection, which allowed the trains to come into Collier, go through Collier, and then up on the Atlantic coastline and get them into Richmond. Before that, an earlier version of the consolidation took place when the seaboard ultimately left Main Street Station in downtown Richmond, which is a beautiful facility, and I encourage you to visit it. You can ride again uh, through the facility uh, from that facility on Amtrak's trains that operate over the Chesapeake in Ohio, uh, and you can also have an event there. So if you're going to get married, go ahead do it, have the reception at Main Street Station, you will not be sorry. Also, if you're going to get elected governor of Virginia and you want to have your reception there, do it. I fully recommend it. Uh, what Governor Yunkin did when he was inaugurated a couple of years ago. Um, the uh, Or I should say last year. Wow, time flies. Uh, but one of the earlier consolidations took place when the seaboard left Main Street Station for Broad Street Station, which is now the Virginia Museum of Science. So that's the sort of thing the ICC, Interstate Commerce Commission, which was the railroad's principal economic regulator, wanted to see and ultimately did. So here you have the seaboard coastline and the seaboard coastline. Well, you know, they were very supportive of continuing to operate passenger service And they did, and they did it in a big way for as long as they could. And now we also, for those of you who are fans, we also have several Seaboard Coastline timetables, which are also in very good condition and also $15 a piece. Now, the one we're not going to sell, because I'm putting it in my personal collection, is this one. And this one, to me, it's actually very sad. It's from 1971. And you'll notice on the cover, it says the inner city trains shown herein, effective May 1st, 1971, will be operated by the Seaboard Coastline Railroad under contract for the National Railroad Passenger Corporation. That National Railroad Passenger Corporation, of course, is Amtrak's legal name. Uh, But look at how thin and flimsy this is. Uh, And it only contains several trains here. The Silver Star, the Silver Meteor, the Champion, and the South Wind. That's all that Amtrak would continue to operate. Uh, And that was down, here's a better example from 1969. You can see how much beefier this is. Uh, And back then you had the city of Miami operating from Chicago to Miami. The Gulf Wind, which ran from New Orleans to to Miami and St. Petersburg. The Everglades, the Gulf Coast Special the Palmland, 
uh, the champion, uh, actually several sections of the champion, going to uh, Augusta, Montgomery, and of course the Silver Star and the Silver Meteor. And oh, by the way, since we're talking about the winter timetable, you also had the famous Florida Special, which was the Atlantic Coastline's uh, competition to the Seaboard's Orange Blossom Special, which was a limited stop, all Pullman train that got people as quickly as they could from New York to Florida. Now, all those things, and most of those trains were gone by the time you got here, and that shows how even the decline was substantial. But this is something that I also want to highlight uh, before we get into that next episode, because the legislation that enabled Amtrak uh, would not allow railroads like the Seaboard Coastline to simply discontinue the trains that they didn't want to operate and continue to operate the ones they wanted to if they declined to join Amtrak. So that meant Amtrak came along and discontinued all the trains that the railroad didn't want to, but took them away, the remaining trains, away from the private operator. And we ultimately ended up with a situation we have now where we're doing everything we can to hope that some politician somewhere will benevolently grant us the ability to have the trains back that we used to have before they took them away in the first place. It was a bad business decision. It was a bad legislative decision. It was terrible. And some of the casualties that we had were the privately operated seaboard trains, as it is said that, in fact, uh, the seaboard had hoped to hold on to those trains, but their inability to discontinue those that they didn't feel had any viability uh, as part of the Amtrak legislation. And, and this is important, the expected high cost of purchasing new equipment to uh, utilize on these trains were some things that really weighed on the Seaboard's decision to ultimately go ahead and join Amtrak. Now, of course, we certainly wish they had not, but we are stuck with what we have. And as I mentioned before, in the years since, uh, Amtrak has now operated these services for longer than certainly the Seaboard Coastline and also the Seaboard Airline as well. Now, I hope you have enjoyed our discussion here and what we're going to talk about in our next episode is what happened after these trains went to Amtrak because that is a very, very, very uh, interesting time because there were plenty of reroutings and so on. But there's also one other thing, and I will grab you something else that will uh, get you going. And these are timetables for the Seaboard system. These are employee timetables. What I have here is a Jacksonville division. On the back, you can see the route map of it, and we will go through some of these, talking about some uh, of the more nuanced aspects, such as tonnage ratings, but also what it takes to read a employee timetable. I know we did that in our last one. Uh, some of the long-gone lines, such as the Perry subdivision. Uh, each of these can be yours for $20, and then again, we will have, you can certainly send us a private message. We can get that to you or send us an email, info at allaboard.media, subject, seaboard, timetables. Let us know what you want, whether you would like a public timetable for the seaboard coastline, public timetable for the seaboard airline, or employee timetable for the seaboard system. We got you covered, and we will get that to you the day that you send us uh, your payment. Now, 
before I let you go, I know we've gone a little bit over our time here. I want to let you know about one other project that we will be doing here on the All Aboard podcast. And I'm going to warn you, it'll take us some time, but you're going to have a lot of fun. This is a 1990s second run Atlas FP7. I got this when I was uh, just before became a teenager and I did my best. It was a little bit of a fantasy paint scheme to make it look uh, like what would have happened if Conrail had put a patch job on one of the surviving Redding FP7. So this is the 902, actually one of the engines that we had been talking about potentially going to SMS earlier in on the show. And the other I just recently acquired, this is a Hobbytown of Boston E7, a very heavy locomotive, and it is painted faithfully for Amtrak as their number 185. And before you think, well, Phil, you've certainly lost your mind. I don't know if I can trust anything else you're going to say on this show. I know Amtrak did not own any E7s. There never was an E7-185. This is also a fantasy paint scheme here. Um, and it also has, as per happened with Hobbytown, uh, very good details for the 1960s and 1970s, but quite a bit rudimentary when we're talking about something that is going to be on today's layouts. Uh, also, I don't know what the deal is with this uh, power chassis, but you and I together are going to learn what they were thinking and how to make this run and run well. Uh, I can say that this is probably the heaviest locomotive that I've ever seen. It's probably rivaling some of those Genesis locomotives at Amtrak. Okay, I'm kidding about that. Uh, but what we're going to do is we are going to turn this FP7, this fantasy uh, Conrail patch job 900 series uh, you know, that, that didn't exist. We're going to turn that into a seaboard coastline fp7 so something like we've been talking about a little bit during the show today and the e7 we are going to make that into a version of what is up here on the timetable so we're going to be capturing some of the details such as the unique handrails that the seaboard had on the front of its e7s uh not shown here but it's the number board the real number board that they had on top and not to mention this paint now, while it might seem to be kind of grayish here, the seaboard had a very, very interesting scheme that was a mint green that appears to be white, but we're going to learn more about that in the next episode when we start to really get into these engines and see what it's going to take to actually fix them up to look like the prototypes that we want. Because my thing is, I know a lot of you love your fantasy railroading, and I think it's cool, but I prefer to be as close and faithful to the prototype as possible, except when I lose my mind and start making up my own railroad names, and I'll do that from time to time. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, excursion or this trip into transportation excellence. Um, I hope you'll be back for our next episode. Please do me a favor, like and share the video. That's how on YouTube and Rumble they find out who we are and we'll make sure that we get some of our friends who love trains to watch us too. Also, share your thoughts in the comments. What did we do well? What did we not do so well? 
what would you like us to talk about in future episodes? I want to make sure this is interactive as possible. And one final thing, if you would like to come on with me, and whether it is talk about your favorite railroad, whether it's you want to talk about a modeling project you're doing, if you've worked in the industry, if you invest in the industry, if you've owned a railroad and run one, you name it, I'd love to have you on. So also there, shoot me an email, info at allaboard.media, and in the subject line, put all aboard podcast or something like that. It's something close. Just so I know what's what I will get back to them. I'll respond to each of you individually. We'll schedule time to have you on or to talk about what you would like. So we will see you on the main line. Hope you have a great evening and thank you for joining us.